I don't like that plexiglass, and sometimes when we have a smaller crowd, y'all feel too far away, so I want to be a little closer to you. All right, so uh, we've kind of been bouncing around a little bit in the lectionary text for the season of Lent. Today we're going to read the New Testament lesson, which comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21, and then our gospel uh, text will be our sermon text for today. But first, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. And then our gospel lesson and sermon text, Luke chapter 15, the first three verses, and then we're going to skip to verse 11 through 32. Let me just remind you, this is God's word to us. It's given to us because he loves us. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, meaning Jesus, told them this parable. And then we're going to skip to verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, 
And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the gospel of our Lord. So I had the blessing to have a very close relationship with my grandparents on my mother's side. My my mother was the oldest of five Kids, they grew up dirt poor in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. My grandfather was a migrant construction worker. He traveled around. He was a welder. Uh, by the time I came around, they had attained sort of a you know blue-collar working class uh, station of life, but they still lived in the family home way out in the middle of nowhere in the boonies of Alabama, and I, actually, I just absolutely loved spending time with them and spending time at their house, and I also enjoyed... Uh, the many uh, family gatherings that we would have at my grandparents' house, um, these family dinners at their table, whether it be holidays or special occasions or just because. And um, my grandmother, uh, in particular, was uh, she was quite the practical joker. Uh, actually, uh, Jan playing um, Peace in the Valley, Elvis style. Uh, that was one of her favorite songs, actually. We didn't plan that. It just happened to work out that way. Uh, but she was a huge fan of Elvis and that song in particular. And she was also a practical joker. And her practical jokes, uh, where she liked to play them most was at the table, at the dinner table. For instance, uh, the first time my mother brought my father home to uh, meet them for the first time, she had a kitchen table chair that she knew was broken And uh, she put it purposely at the table and purposely directed my father to sit in it so that it would break underneath him and dump him on the floor uh, and embarrass him the first time he ever came to uh, meet his soon-to-be parent-in-laws. Another time, um, my uncle actually, on my dad's side, um, I don't remember what the occasion was, but for whatever, whatever reason, he was there, and he was kind of a character, and my grandmother knew that, and she would make... uh, this pepper jelly, so jelly made out of peppers, uh, but she would color it so that it looked like strawberry jelly, and so she, you know, was like, you know, what, what kind of jelly would you like for your biscuit? Do you want grape or strawberry? And of course, he said strawberry, because strawberry is the most superior jelly to all jellies. We all know this, right? So he picks strawberry, and he slathers up his biscuit full of what he thinks is strawberry jelly and takes a big bite and then his mouth is on fire because it's actually made out of peppers. And she's just dying laughing because she thinks this kind of stuff is hilarious. Uh, Not all my memories around their table are the fondest of, of, of dinner time memories. My grandfather had this thing about making me try stuff, eat stuff, and like refused 
to let me get away with not trying it. And one time he wanted me to try oysters. And you're like, oh, what's the big deal about oysters? Well, it's not oysters like on the half shell in a nice restaurant. They came in this big jar, like yay big, and some sort of fluid. I don't even know what that fluid is that somehow preserves shellfish for, you know, an enormously long shelf life. Uh, so I didn't want to eat these, but we sat there for what felt like three hours just at a stare down across the table with each other. And I eventually gave in and with a lot of ketchup, uh, swallowed one and figured, you know, people who eat oysters are the dumbest people in the world. I don't know why anybody would ever want to eat these things. And thankfully later someone redeemed oysters for me. And, um, and now I love oysters. But at any rate, my point being, I have a lot of very fond memories around my grandparents' dinner table and just all the love and the joy and the laughter uh, that I can remember at their table. And that's pertinent because perhaps one of the key images to what life with God is meant to be like, depicted for us in the story of Scripture, uh, really from beginning to end, uh, happens at a table. Happens at a table gathered around a family meal. And in fact, the passage that we read today in Luke 15, this whole scene is taking place around a table. Jesus is sitting at table uh, with what it says is the tax collectors and sinners, so the most socially unacceptable people in town. And he is sitting down and he is sharing a meal with them. And the religious authorities and leaders of Jesus' day uh, witness what he's doing, the, the Pharisees, and they begin to grumble. And they begin to complain against Jesus' practice to do so. And you know, they're basically saying this is not how any respectable religious leader behaves themselves, breaking bread with the likes of these people. And so Jesus responds to their complaints by telling these three stories. And what these three stories are meant to show us is that God is a God who is joyful. That God is a God who is joyful. You have the story of a shepherd who finds a lost sheep, a woman who finds a lost coin, and of course the one that we read, a father who finds a lost son. And what brings God joy is finding what was lost. That what brings God joy is finding what was lost. These three stories, and the third in particular, are in fact a brilliant summary of this entire Bible, of the entire story of scripture and a summary of the revelation of who God is and who we are as his people. I mean, if you think about it, think about how the story begins. In Genesis, we are created by God, by God's love, for God's love. We are meant to dwell at home with him as his children, and everything that God creates and makes is ours to enjoy, minus the one thing, of course, the one thing that was not yet time for us to have, and so our Lenten practice of preparation, of suffering the patient loss of something that was not bad, but good, but we had to wait until the time was right. But of course, our first parents, they didn't wait. Rather than live within the boundaries of God's love and wait until the proper time when what was rightfully theirs What was going to be their inheritance would be theirs. Rather than wait for that time within the boundaries of God's love, they chose to go their own way. And so we also chose to go our own way. And this fundamental choosing, as we talked about 
a few weeks ago of basically not trusting that God's word is good and not to trust his goodness and love is sin, that this is the essence of what sin is. And for that sin, we're cast out. We're cast out of God's home to become wanderers on the earth, living on the edge of God's great goodness and attempting to satisfy our hunger with the shadows of the real thing. But, as we've seen the last few weeks, and the promises that God makes and the covenants that he makes with mankind, God promises to never give up on us, to never stop looking for us, to never stop pursuing us, to never stop being ready to embrace us When we return, we see that God yearns for us, he desires us, and he rejoices when we return home to him. Now, do you expect that to be God's reaction? When you return to God with your brokenness and your sin, is that how you expect God to respond? Or... Do you, like the Pharisees, expect God to respond to you with righteous contempt? You know, the sort of thing like, don't come in here looking like that. You're going to come in here dressed like that? You can't come in here dressed like that. Or don't come in here after the things that you have done. You stay outside. You're not welcome here anymore. You don't belong. Do we expect God to respond to us like the contempt of the Pharisees? Or... Do you come to God like the younger brother, expecting that God will, okay, he'll, he'll let us back in, but begrudgingly and with disappointment? You can come back, but no longer as a child, but as a slave, as a servant. You can come back, but you've got to stay over there. You can't come back in the house. But how does the father respond in the story? He runs to the son and embraces him with joy. In fact, if you know sort of the words that are used in the original language, it basically just says that he falls on his son's neck and he silences his son's fears. In fact, he stops him dead in his tracks with his apologies. You see that the son had this whole canned speech, right? And he didn't get to finish it. He only got about the first sentence or two out, and the father's like, I don't, need, I don't even want to hear it. I don't even need to hear it anymore. He covers his son's filthiness with his own mercy. He fills the son's hunger from his own goodness, and he does all this with joy. You see, we come to grovel and to beg and bargain with God for a second chance, and instead, he just gives you a humongous bear hug. And assures you that you are my son, you are my daughter, you are my child, and you are home. And that's all that matters. And that joyful embrace of finding what was lost is transformative. And not just for the son, but for everyone. If you listen again to verse 24, when the father says, For this my son was was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, it says, And they began to celebrate. The Father's joy is transformative. It's contagious. Everyone is affected by the Father's joy to find what was lost. The Father's joy to continually be scanning that horizon, looking for the Son 
to come back home, the father's joy to run and to embrace the son, the father's joy to assure him of his place in the family, in the house, to put the family ring back on his finger and make sure that he knows his identity, that he belongs, and the father's joy to defend the son against his accusers. Because, actually, not everyone was transformed by the father's joy, were they not? The elder brother. The elder brother, in his self-righteousness, despises his younger brother. The elder brother, in his self-righteousness, rejects his father's joy. And the elder brother refuses his own joy by refusing to go in and join and celebrate into the feast and the party with the rest. And the father responds in verse 31, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the father defending the shameful against his accusers. This is how God is defending us right now as we speak. When you are accused by your own shame, or when you were accused by those who would condemn you, God defends you not according to your sin and to your shame, but according to His grace and His love and His mercy. And you have to understand that Jesus isn't just telling them this. He isn't just reciting this cool story. He's living it right before their very eyes. Again, remember, this whole story takes place with Jesus sitting at table with the most notorious outcasts of society. This is Jesus speaking to a table full of younger brothers. Younger brothers telling them that their shame is not what ultimately defines them. He is telling this story in front of a crowd of elder brothers, that their contempt of God's joy is misplaced and and their contempt is actually barring themselves, that they are only hurting themselves by not entering into their own joy. He is living in front of them that at the center of our communal life with God is a table. It's a feast. And this is what we are preparing for right now. This is what we are preparing for this Lenten season, a feast of joy. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready for something to celebrate. I'm ready to celebrate with joy because we as a community have endured and are enduring so much loss. And it's affected, it has affected our joy. In fact, sometimes I think we're suspicious of joy. Sometimes I think we're afraid to be joyful because we don't want people to think we're dumb or stupid. If you're ever around people who are like really, truly joyous, do they make you uncomfortable sometimes? I know they do me sometimes. Sometimes it's just like, what do you have to be so joyful about? Like, if you really knew what was going on, you wouldn't be so joyful. If you actually had insight like I do, you wouldn't be joyful. But in your your naivete and your ignorance, you're joyful when you shouldn't be. 
Do you ever feel that way around people who are joyful that make you uncomfortable? It feels awkward to be around them? Well, friends, that's not how we are meant to live. That's not how we were created. We can baptize our cynicism and despair and call it true sight and insight, but the truth is we're just merely transferring our pain rather than allowing our pain to transform us. But we must recover our joy. And we will only recover our joy to the degree that we can silence those voices of shame. Only to the degree that we can silence those voices of our accusers and listen instead to the voice of the Father who celebrates over us with joy. No matter our circumstances, this church, our communities, our city, our country, our world is desperate for the church to recover the joy of our Father. And if we can recover this joy, and I hope that we are preparing to celebrate this joy, this Easter season with the resurrection of our Lord, if we can recover this kind of joy, it is a good kind of contagious. There will be others who will want to come and feast and be glad with our Father, who is a God of joy, who rejoices over what is lost being found. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by confessing our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I ask you, brothers and sisters, and